but then you're not a consultant, right? Then, then you're, then you're like, I want to create a, an education information publishing business. And that's, that's not consulting. <laughs> that's, that means you're starting a whole nother business. And if you want to, you can, um, but just be mind again, be mindful that I, I would be, I would be skeptical if you think you're going to create some publishing business and then ascend people from the publishing business or the course business or whatever into your consulting. I, 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 in most of the time I've seen that they're just, they are different audiences and the people you attract with one do not often convert to be the other. Hello and welcome to The Modern Consultant. I'm your host, Mark Aarons, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking with Brian Spurinello. If you were to Google his name, you would see the website freelancelikeapro.com show up, and he does exactly that over there. shows you how to freelance like a professional so that you can make that full-time leap. However, if you are in the world of direct response sales copywriting, then you may know Brian as the sales copywriter and growth strategist that has helped his clients make over $100 million worth of sales. Now, those are big numbers, and that's part of what's going to make today's episode a very special one, because we're going to talk about how he got into the world of consulting, then independent consulting, and then how he has been able to help these brands grow uh, to be uh, just as large as they have. And we also talk about how to become a highly sought after uh, consultant or service provider in your marketplace such that people are reaching out to you to work with you. We also talk about different kinds of uh, contract structures uh, to be able to retain clients over a longer period of time. And then we also talk about, well, what about if you're productizing your consulting or your expertise? Should you do low ticket offers, medium ticket offers, high ticket offers? The answer is very specific if you are a consultant. And we get into that and why and how to even start thinking about the different structures of funnels that you will want to be deploying into the marketplace, depending on the kind of offer that you want to be putting out there into the world to change the lives of the people that you feel called to serve. Again, today's episode is going to be a very special one. We have a lot of fun and I want you to be in on this conversation. Thanks for listening or watching and I'll see you on the other side. Brian, I just want to say uh, welcome to The Modern Consultant. Uh, I am honored uh, to have you. There is, I can say this with certainty, uh, that over the five plus years of knowing you, it has been just amazing to watch you just ascend uh, into, you know, well, I, I don't want to gas people up who are listening to this, but like <laughs> you, you have to understand uh, just for context, they would have heard this in the intro, but you know, Going from Bachelor of Fine Arts to making a hundred million in sales uh, for your clients, like that's it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for my clients, not for me. <laughs> I wish working on that one next. Nice. Uh, so, but I'll tell you, right? Like, there's really two kinds of people that I know of so far um, that are going to be listening into this, and it's going to be the consultants who are trying to get to the point that you are at, you know, uh, and of course you, you're the founder of freelance, like a pro and, and so like, I want to make this conversation as valuable for them as possible. You've also got, uh, the, 
the consultants who you could almost say are a couple of years down the line and they've grown a team of consultants and they're wanting to continue growing the service line, but they've taken a very strong interest in productization uh, and particularly creating digital products, selling those digital products uh, and trying to get to like that 10 million uh, per year mark, mm -hmm. uh, but with productized uh, offerings uh, as it. opposed to just having uh, services because they're like, oh man, like the economies of scale and they're going to be able to impact all these people. And for those people, it's like, huh, they, some of them have never worked with someone like you before that has your track record. And they, they're not even sure how to go about even finding uh, someone like you or how you even think. And so I think this conversation is going to be really illuminating uh, for them because uh, we all come to the table with preconceived notions of what to expect from copywriters. Uh, but I wanted to really uh, have this conversation with you because to kick things off to so people can get a chance to know you more, I would love to hear more about how like Having parents who, at the, I think it was either your father uh, that was a chemical engineer. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. My dad's a chemical engineer. Yeah. So like, did that influence your thinking any before like going down the route of like bachelors of fine arts and then going into uh, copywriting and well consulting before you got into copywriting? Yes, but not, not in an affirmative way. It wasn't like it wasn't that they were encouraging me to take that direction. They were, my parents were both pretty hands off. They were kind of like, as long as your grades are, you know, in the range that we want them, which was usually like, you know, a B high B's to an A, as long as I'm getting like respectable grades, they would pretty much let me do whatever I wanted. And I, I think I drove my mom crazy a couple of times where I'd be like <laughs> practicing guitar until like, 11 p.m. when she knew I had a paper due the next day, but I found a way to get it done. So she had to like back off. Um, <laughs> so I, I was fortunate that I was afforded the opportunity to be able to explore my interests. And mm. my parents were, were generally supportive of that. So when I said I wanted to go to school for music production, they were on board. Um, and so it was really, I, I had a, a lot of experience being self-directed both from my parents and also um, from my my high school band teacher of all people. Uh, mm. His name was Mr. Valla. Shout out Mr. Valla. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but uh, one of the things that he did with us, which is kind of crazy if you think about a bunch of high school kids, we would grade ourselves. So after every every concert, the you know we would sit down the next day, we would listen to the recordings, then we would have to give ourselves a grade. And that, and ironically we were often harder on ourselves than he would have necessarily been. So, but it was another example of, of being forced to sort of evaluate my own performance and evaluate my own desire to go in a certain direction. Um, so all of those things sort of coalesced to allow me to then say, when I got out of college, when I started working, uh, realized the music industry and the music production world was not, really for me, uh, when it came to a professional career. And so figuring out the next thing, getting into marketing, you know, I had taken some classes on like marketing in the music industry. So I thought maybe that was a way to go. Um, that whole time it was sort of building on that foundation of, of sort of self-determination and then self-assessment 
right? So my parents allowing me to kind of explore things and then, you know, experiences like my band teacher having to then evaluate those decisions and iterate, um, all of those things came together to eventually lead me down that path um, to, to, to marketing first and then copywriting as a discipline within marketing as kind of my sweet spot. So mm. hopefully that gives you a nice um, trajectory for how I, how I wound up here. <laughs> no, that's uh, excellent. And there's something in there that you mentioned that I want to like just dive in on like a, almost take this magnifying glass and just uh, expand it there, uh, which is getting into the world of marketing. Because uh, from what I understand, uh, your your marketing journey, uh, we could almost split it up into two phases. It's like you've got the consultant like phase, but then before you became the independent consultant. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, what if any are the differences between operating as a consultant versus an independent consultant? Right. So yeah, I think you're you're referring to the fact I worked for a government contractor that had a uh, strategic communications and marketing division mm -hmm. um, that they they took that division and sort of ranked it on the PR week agency rankings. So we were at at one point while I was there, like number five in the US. Um, so it was sort of like a, a marketing and communications agency nested within a large government contractor. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing I took away from that was I hate billing hours. <laughs> I don't want to have to track my time down to 10 yeah. minute increments and assign them to billing codes. And I understand the necessity when you're running a company of that size and scale. Mm -hmm. uh, but having to do it was miserable. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because now, I, you know, when, I, when it comes to freelancers, I advocate strongly for tracking your time. Mm -hmm. Um but to me, it rings a little bit differently when it's allowing me to determine my own profitability and decide, hey, I want more clients like this. I want less, fewer clients like that. Uh, this is where my time is best spent in terms of maximizing my return. Um, those things are interesting to me and I directly benefit financially. Um, so, you know, it, it's <laughs> it's funny that the, the same behavior with different contexts um, can, can trigger some, some different responses. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't other than that, working for that large government contractor and, and consulting company was, it was just corporate. You know what I mean? It was mm. pretty, especially when you're dealing with like state governments, it was just very kind of bland and boring and, and you weren't allowed to be very edgy because you know, the government is, is clearly very, um, sensitive and conscious to, yep. um, so they wanted to play it absolutely as safe as possible. Um, and so, you know, that's, I was only able to do that for so long until it was kind of like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not able to sort of flex my creative muscle at all. I have to stay within a very small and confined box. And, you know, at that, at that, again, that was, that was interesting for, for me to get as a sort of first big job out of college, it was great for me to get in there, get some experience, understand what it was like to operate, you know, in a professional environment. Mm -hmm. But then I felt like, you know, the, there was a, it was a little bit too restrictive for me and for my desires. And that was when I decided I would look for other opportunities. I really appreciate you sharing that because part of the value in hearing that is not just understanding from the perspective of a consultant who's trying to get to the point of where you are right now, what to look for and also start to exclude from their life. But from 
the perspective of the consultants who are further along, how to start to architect their companies in a way that actually increases retention. You know, it's like making where it is that you work actually add value to the people who are working there and, it, you know, contributing to their lives in a meaningful way. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to retain top talent. Um, it also makes me think of uh, something else, uh, which is the divide between uh, just really two ways that I've noticed that people get to the point of independent uh, consulting. There's the, I had a background in corporate consulting to some way, shape or form. And then there's the ones like myself uh, who didn't have a background. And so I'm always personally interested and hearing how someone left from a corporate situation and then got into like the independent consulting route. But just to, for those who might be like myself, who don't have the background in corporate, what do you mean by bland and boring? Just to like, like paint as clear a picture, it doesn't matter how terrible it is. <laughs> like for us, like what does that mean for you? Um, you know, it was like, you know, one of the campaigns was was more or less around like trying to get people to like carpool, and we're, we're sort of competing with Uber, but like more or less just sending emails saying, "Hey guys, please carpool," and it's it's just not like an effective. Yeah, yeah the, the that was what the state was like. That was what the goal of the of the state like campaign was that's what they were hiring mm -hmm. us to do so we had to follow their strategy or the, i don't necessarily want to say strategy but like their objective was to to essentially market their way to getting people to to drive their car less and use alternate forms of transportation mm -hmm. but to me that's not it's not a marketing problem so uh, my coworkers and I did the best that we could within those constraints of trying to use marketing and, and communications to encourage people to, you know, ride share and, and take the transit and stuff like that. But mm. the, the real answer is to make transit more convenient than a car. You know what mm. I mean? Like it's a, it's a behavioral problem that in my opinion, no amount of marketing messaging and communication is ever going to get people to meaningfully change their behavior. It's like, we didn't have a great mm. offer, right? So if, if yeah. you want to go to what I do now in terms of in like mm -hmm. direct response marketing, yep. the, the biggest thing is you want to have an offer that makes people like want to buy it, right? If you have something that, that is so compelling, you, you don't need great copy. You don't need amazing media buyers because you have something that people want, right? That's the, what's there's that whole, I think, I think this is a Jay Abraham thing where it's like, um, you know, you have the restaurant and you can pick any, like what's what you, you have a choice of any sort of criteria or you have one advantage, right? You get to pick whatever you want. What is it? And people will say, oh, I want a corner lot or I want this or I want that. And Jay's like, haha, I want a hungry crowd. Nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. in this case, the offer was just not, it's not compelling. And, and again, I, I don't think that whatever we did, <laughs> there's no way to message your way to that behavior change, it's a, you need to change the offer. And that was not something that's was within our control. And um, I so again, no, please. Uh, I was just going to say, I love that you brought it to that. That's exactly where my mind went. You know, it's, it's, you know, some people might think of it as like a product problem or, you know, like a service problem, but mm -hmm. you know, we could just extend it to say, okay, product offering problem or service offering problem. Yep. It's still an offer. 
uh, yeah. problem. What we were selling was not, no amount of messaging was going to get people to buy what we were selling or, or change the behavior in the way that we wanted it changed. Yep. There was, you would have to change that the behavioral dynamics of transportation to make it more convenient, more affordable, more accessible. Any number of those things compared to driving for people to actually stop taking their car and instead use transit or you know, any of the other options we were trying to promote. And so to contextualize this for someone who might not necessarily have this background, we, we can take part of what Brian just shared. And it, it sounds like it's really about uh, not just the offer, but audience offer fit. Yeah. You know, it's like we, we've got to have a fit. Um, and within the audience, of course, you have like whatever problem they're trying to solve or whatever opportunities it is that they want. Uh, this is cool because it is also an interesting segue moving forward a little bit more in your uh, marketing journey uh, to the point of going from, you know, a, a corporate consultant to then independent like a consultant. Could you tell us more about that journey? Sure. Yeah, there was a brief a couple of years stop after that corporate consulting gig when I went to the National Hockey League for three-ish years and I ran the e-commerce marketing there, which was more, it was, so in terms of being a former hockey player and, and, and fan, it was a dream job in that respect. Uh, it was still not the, there was more creativity, I would think, than, than the, what I was able to do with the corporate consulting, but there was still not a ton because most of what, most of the way that business unit is set up is through third-party vendors. So a lot of the sort of my day-to-day -day was managing our vendors and the vendors were the ones coming up with the campaigns and, and, and getting to sort of mold the, the, the marketing strategy. And it was up to us at the league level to just make sure all the vendors were kind of on the same page. So we would have, you know, one primary vendor who was sort of the e-commerce retailer driving the bulk of the strategy and then being supported by other vendors. And our job was to collaborate with that main vendor to, to make sure the strategy fit with what we were looking for on a league perspective, and then get everybody sort of circle the wagons and, and on the same page. Uh, but again, it wasn't, I wasn't the one who was totally in the driver's seat the way I am now with all the stuff I do on my own, which is nice because there's, there's both a lot of stress in terms of, with, of you know, if it's all my decisions, then I own the results for better or for worse. Um, which is, again, if it, if it does well, now you kind of get to say that, you know, I was able to, to achieve this with my skill set, my expertise. And if it bombs, you're also on the hook. Uh, but at least you have that full creative control to be able to do what you believe is in the client's best interest and try to get the best result that you can um, for them and, and with them. Um, so how I got to my own independent consulting was basically I wanted to freelance on, I wanted to eventually run my own business, get out of working for somebody else. So I started freelancing on the side. I think even back when I was at the corporate consulting uh job. So for about five years between those two positions, I was building up my freelance business on the side, freelancing, consulting, call it what you want, independent contracting, uh, you know, working for myself, taking on my own one-on-one -on -one clients, providing services for them in the marketing and communications, uh, you know, industry is, is what I started doing then. 
and eventually scaled to the point where I was ready to leave the NHL um, in 2017. I think it was like September, 2017. Um, So I don't know necessarily that being a corporate consultant, quote unquote, was that critical to doing what, what I've been able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, to your point of, of, you know, what can you learn from it or, or how can people who don't have that background accomplish it? I don't necessarily know that that was critical to my success. Um, Funny. I I was going back through some of my very first client outreach emails for um, a, a coaching program that I am a sort of guest coach in. And, um, and I was, so I was looking back at my old pitches and I did mention, you know, when I was reaching out to potential clients, how I, I, during the day I work for this, you know, strategic communications and marketing company ranked in the top five by PR week, blah, 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 as a way to build credibility and establish myself as some kind of expert. Mm-hmm. But there's other ways to do that, right? So whatever your specific background and expertise is, you can take that. So just because it, it was, you know, corporate consulting for me, it's probably something else for you. Mm-hmm. Because if you have zero experience and zero background and zero credibility, I don't think you should, you should be trying to start your own consulting business just yet. True. I think you should have the skill set first. So by definition, if you have the skill set, you can then cut whatever your unique perspective is, however you got your skill set that is that is you know, truthful and accurate to you, that's what you have to showcase to your first few potential clients to get mm-hmm. them to trust you enough to hire you. But again, if you don't have the skills, I, again, I'm, 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 I can't think of a scenario where you would somehow have the skills without the ability to communicate how you acquired those skills <laughs> in a way that is compelling and, and truthful and would get you in the door with at least a few initial clients. Um, Agreed. <laughs> the only way I can think that you don't have something to say is if you also don't actually have the skills. So I'm going to say that they're, they are sort of mutually exclusive and or inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if I'm wrong, if you can think of an example, email me, Brian at freelance, like a pro.com and tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. For me, uh, like my background is in environmental sciences. And so that has just been a natural in with anyone who is also coming from a STEM background, science, tech, engineering, math, um, or people who are systems thinkers and, and appreciate the scientific method and like that sort of thing. And so hundred percent accurate. That just happens to be my background. I've also worked with people who come from an arts background and that's the advantage because they bring that perspective to the table and someone in the world finds that valuable. So a hundred percent agree with you on that. Bridging from that point of the journey, uh, For some of the people listening in, they may not necessarily understand the distinction between marketing and uh, direct response sales, copywriting specifically. Tell us about that part of the journey. And then also, you know, just from your perspective, what's the difference between the two, if any? So if, if I had to put my own definitions on it, I would say that marketing is about what you were talking about, the product market fit and establishing a connection between a specific product or service or, or offer, right? To go back to that phrase, it 
it incorporates more about the the design of the offer, the creation of the offer, figuring out what who the market is for that offer, and then bringing all those things together. Uh, it's a bigger umbrella. There's more involved. Where you know direct response, specifically copywriting, is all about writing words that get somebody to take the desired action by the end of the sales message, right? So if you write a long form sales letter, it in in its heyday, you would get a letter in the mail, the person would ideally open the letter. So the, the you know, the, the outside of the envelope would be designed to get somebody to open the letter. Then the headline of the letter would get somebody to read the first line. The first line would get them to read the second line, second line, the third line, and then eventually at the end of the letter, there would be a offer to buy a product or to opt in and, and you know to to claim some free report, where it, which is like a lead gen strategy. But whatever it is, they read to the end of the piece and then they take the action that you want them to take. That is the direct response part, right? You send a direct message and then the person initiates the response, whether that's mailing in their order form with the you know their credit card number or the their lead generation contact information. Um, Again, it's it's but it's one message out and then one response at the end, versus you know again marketing can incorporate other things that are sort of more top of funnel you might say, which are you know branding and building awareness for something before you actually ask for the sale, um, or even the the deeper structural things of, hey, if we're going to build this product, who are the people that we think are going to buy this product before we even go in and start making it, because you don't want to you know back to that restaurant example. You don't want to build a restaurant when the crowd is already full, right? Because then mm. nobody's coming in to eat and then you go out of business. So it's figuring out and, and ideally making sure you've got those pieces put together to the best of your ability before you go and push some big rollout. Because I think we've all probably experienced or heard about examples where a company is, has... CNN plus, right? Didn't they spend $300 million or something and they shut it down in three days? Like (laughs) talk about failing to do a product market fit. There would have, ideally you would have done something or many somethings leading up to that launch where you are validating along the way that yes, our customers, or, or there is a market for, of people who will pay additional money for a CNN streaming service, whether that would be you know, having a specific anchor set up a stub stack or, or um, you know, Patreon or OnlyFans or whatever it is, <laughs> and see would people pay money for additional content from that specific anchor. And so also, I bring up OnlyFans half in jest because obviously it's been mostly known for like adult content mm-hmm. but creatively it's a more native experience it's a more like app based experience compared to a patreon so i do know of people who are not in the adult content space who still use onlyfans because of the sort of app native experience to be able to deliver premium paid content so i wasn't trying to imply like that we should be getting nude photos of CNN anchors. I was more thinking about the ability to use any of these paid premium content platforms, again, Substack, Patreon, even OnlyFans in some cases, adult content aside. Um, And they could have done some type of test around that where if you can't even get like your biggest star to get X number of paid subscribers, well, hold on, there's a big red flag here that if we can't even get our best person 
if we can't get people to pay a little bit of money for our best person, how are we going to get people to pay even more money for a whole people, a whole bunch of other people that they probably like even less? Yeah. Um, so that type of validation product market fit, I would say is all under that larger marketing umbrella. Yep. Um, so at least so in my opinion, <laughs> I, I love that distinction uh, because it is a wheelhouse that uh, we walk our clients through. You know, uh, we always start off uh, the first step of marketing is actually not sending a message out to someone. It's actually uh, asking uh, for feedback. And so then research. Uh, and then finding out what it is that people are actually wanting, um, and then also what price points they're willing to pay, what offer formats they're, they're, you know, how they even self-describe themselves to see what the audience segments and everything are as well. And so you hit the nail on the head a hundred percent. And you know, uh, whether it's OnlyFans or whatever the channel may be, uh, something that we all have to look at is whether or not a channel is growing or dying. And that is going to be applicable to Facebook, uh, paid advertising, organic, whatever, whatever the channel, whatever the medium, like we have to see, is it a growing channel? Are more people looking at it versus are less people looking at it over time? Because uh, that's just going to uh, cap the total addressable market. Um, and so 1000%. I'm curious though, when that actually brings up another point, um, which is for some of the service providers that are listening to this, uh, they're thinking about, okay, all right, so I've got to validate this offer, great. But when I'm getting up to the point of like launching this thing to the world and thinking about what I should price it at, you know, low ticket offers versus mid ticket offers versus higher ticket offers, uh, do you have any thoughts on that, any recommendations uh, for them around that? since you have a lot of experience with just many different um, verticals and price points and everything like that as well. Yeah. So this is not something that if we're talking to people who are consultants themselves, then, and they're trying to do this for their own businesses, yep. then I don't know that there's a lot of utility value in a low or even mm -hmm. mid-ticket offer. The, typically, where those fit into the sort of customer life cycle, in my experience, is a way of, of qualifying people beyond like a free report or a free opt-in because you can get a lot of freebie chasers. So by getting somebody to actually pay you a modest amount of money on the front end, You've now qualified them. It's more of a qualification mechanism than a profit motive, profit-driven mechanism. Um, and the, the challenge is, again, what I've found is that most of the time, if you're hiring a consultant, if you're the CEO, CMO, CFO of a company, if you're hiring a consultant, you're hiring them to either like, advise you at very high level strategic decisions. And basically your whole job is just to have a conversation and you're not like actually fulfilling deliverables, right? So you're a strategic thought partner, but you're not actually delivering any work. Um, or the other, um, you know, the other role is you're actually creating deliverables, right? You're, you're, you know, you're providing, you're writing copy, you're doing SEO and like actually going in there and, and creating articles or, or whatever other SEO, you know, you're researching keywords and figuring out what the content strategy should be. 
But in neither of those cases is the CFO, CEO, CMO looking to like do it themselves. So in my experience, the the low ticket and even mid ticket offers are typically like educational. They're teaching somebody else how to do it themselves. But then back to the market, the market for the high ticket for your actual consulting clients, those are not the people who have time to do things themselves. They're paying you to do it for them or to, again, strategically advise them, but not like not how to like do it themselves as in create deliverables, but you know, how to, to, to do the higher level management. And again, I don't know that that can necessarily be packaged into a course. So I just feel like you're not going to, if the goal of the low ticket is to qualify buyers, Anybody who buys that is saying, hey, I am a DIY person. I, I want to learn how to do things myself. But then those are not the people who are going to be paying you tens of thousands of dollars for your consulting because they want to do it themselves or they can't afford to hire somebody else to do it for them. The people who pay a lot of money to have things done for them are the ones who, by definition, will then not want to buy your low ticket front end thing. Um, so again, there may be exceptions to this, but I would be careful about thinking through what your offer stack is, if you're going to go low or mid ticket, make sure that the, the type of person who is hiring your ultimate consulting services is the same type of person who will buy your low and your mid ticket thing. If you go that route, personally, I find that with my freelancing and consulting business, I don't need any of that. I, I can just go to the market knowing with my reputation, with the you know network I've built, the connections I have, and tell somebody, here's the services I offer. Here are the prices. They're pretty pretty high, but you also get a, a pretty good odds of a, a substantial ROI. So if you want to work together, let's, you know, we can set up a call and talk more about the details. Um, and I don't find that I need much more than that. Again, recognizing I'm in a very somewhat niche position in terms of like, a direct response copywriter. That's sort of a known quantity. Mm -hmm. And there are clients who are looking for that exact thing. So at that point, it's a matter of matchmaking. I'm not trying to pioneer some new type of service offering. I'm not trying to, um, and I'm not, not trying to take people who are not aware of, you know, direct marketing, direct response copy and show them why they need it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going after the people who hire people, I'm going after the clients who hire people like me all the time and then telling them why I am the best option that they have of their, you know, of their choices of, of copywriters. So um, let's, so let me sort of summarize that real quick. The low ticket offers typically do not bring in the same caliber of person that you want for your high ticket consulting services. The low ticket is typically a person who wants to do it themselves, whereas your high-end consulting person wants it done for them, and you're never going to bridge those gaps. So unless you figure out how to solve that problem, I don't know that it's that useful. The other, uh, the other um, element that I alluded to is that if you are trying to establish a new market or create a service that is, that is new to the, to the marketplace, then you may also need that those lower ticket front end offers to basically train the market that there's this new thing that they need. I am not, I'm doing neither of those. I am going into an established marketplace, offering my services as one of the 
top people in that marketplace to people, you know, to clients in that marketplace who are hiring people like me. So it's a very well established sort of, again, exchange where the clients know what they're looking for. I know what I offer. We come together, we do business. And that simplifies my life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that's, those would be the sort of lay of the land there. That was an excellent response. And there's so many threads that we could uh, dive into uh, based on that as well. Here are some of the things that you mentioned that just uh, I wanted to underline. Uh, within that, there's a theme of specialization and the advantage of specialization for any service provider and also, of course, consultants, because that allows you to move up market. That makes the value that you bring to the table that much more unique. And therefore, you can, of course, charge a premium rate for it. And it also implicitly uh, shortens the sales cycle as well. Yep. Like there's less marketing that needs to happen, less lead nurture that needs to happen mm -hmm. before we can then have a conversation about doing business together. Also, uh, making sure that you're selling something that's actually in demand, you know, it, it's it's really valuable. And so again, uh, the the market sophistication is very high, they know what the product or service offer is they already have probably paid for it in some way shape or form in the past they have an established buying criteria and so you can have a very direct conversation if you then provide proof of past results that then edifies the promise that you are making to them and i don't know if you get into like guarantees or you know any of that and stuff uh, with your clients but like i heard all of that within what you were saying as well and it just made world of sense because a lot of that's also transferable to um uh, productized offers as well as just digital products uh as well but to your main point uh the selling higher ticket um productized offers and consulting and services and everything for consultants i 100 percent agree that for most of us it just does not make sense uh to go low ticket unless you're in in the unusual place of wanting to transition away <laughs> from from um, uh, uh, services like altogether, and so you're like building yeah. like that. But then you're not a market. consultant, right? Yeah. Then, then you're then you're like, I want to create a an education information publishing business. Yep. And that's that's not consulting. <laughs> that's that means yep. you're starting a whole other business. And if you want to, you can. Um, mm. But just be mind again. Be mindful that I I would be. I would be skeptical if you think you're going to create some publishing business and then ascend people from the publishing business or the mm -hmm. course business or whatever into your consulting. I, 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 in most of the time I've seen that they're just, they are different audiences and the people you attract with one do not often convert to be the other. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, you're right. So I don't want to educate my clients. I want my clients to know, know what I do, know who ideally know who I am before we even talk. And like, they come to the conversation primed that Brian's the one of the top direct response copywriters in the health and fitness vertical. Mm -hmm. We want him to write our next promotion. Um, so, and they just come and they contact me and they say, Hey, we want you to write our, your, you know, our next promotion. What do you charge? <laughs> mm -hmm. And then that's uh, like, when can we get on your calendar? And that's, you know, that is the, the bulk of the conversation, because as soon as you get into trying to educate you, if you have yeah. to educate people on the value that you bring to the table, it's just, it, it, yeah, to your point, it extends the sales cycle. It just becomes so much harder 
And I'm sure that there are rewards for if you put in that hard work and you ultimately establish a new market for yourself where you're sort of a category of one. I'm sure that there are lots of rewards for doing that. Um, I just don't know for me if the incremental reward compared to going into an established market and becoming just one of the top providers, I don't know that the financial payoff is all that much better compared to all the extra hard work you have to do to create that new market all, all by yourself. Um, mm. And also to your other point of, of agency, right? If you were trying to start an agency, you have a lot more upside because then it's you're not limited by your own capacity, right? You're, if you're bringing on team, if you're if you're scaling with employees or subcontractors or whatever, then yeah, penetrating a new market, you can you can expand yourself more broadly because you're planning to bring on team. Personally, that's not a route that I've gone yet. I haven't really felt that need or the desire and the headache to take on all those headaches. And I've still felt that I have headroom to grow based on negotiation and deal structure where I feel like I can still make more money per client by getting paid royalties, by getting paid performance bonuses, by um, accelerating my delivery timelines and just taking on a few more clients every year. Like I, I did a rough sketch of how I could potentially double my business nice. in the next year by doing those things, right? By again, increasing the value of a client, the size of the project, the frequency of purchase, the, the duration of royalties and all those things. So if I still have viable paths to double my business without taking on overhead and without taking on team and staff and all those you know headaches and costs that go along with it, I'm going to go that way first. <laughs> and then Maybe once I completely feel like I've absolutely squeezed everything I possibly can out of the solo consultant, solo freelancer model, maybe then I would consider team. Or I might just say, you know what, at that point, I'm going to be making a good amount of money. <laughs> and then I just want to, I'll just say, you know what, I win. Uh, let me, let me, let me call this, let me just sort of lock this in, say I'm happy here and focus my time and attention on, on other things. That is a well-said answer. Thank you uh, for that. And it actually brings me to the next question uh, that I want to ask you, uh, which is why some, why not grow a team? Why not? launch a product just to play a little bit of devil's advocate because there's some people listening in here who are considering those pathways and i don't like to be an advocate of just one pathway i like people to be exposed to different perspectives so that whichever pathway they ultimately select like they've explored the other ones and so they're going to commit to whichever one uh they choose so i'm curious to hear just a little bit more um around the why uh in this particular choice of business model for you Sure. So why no products? That's the challenge of, I don't want to create a copywriting course. I don't want, A, I don't want to, B, the types of clients who I hire or, or who hire me don't buy copywriting courses. They hire copywriters, right? It's back to that example of the fundamental difference of the market. Mm -hmm. If I If I started selling a copywriting course, I would attract a bunch of other copywriters to my world but those are not the people who pay me, you know, $20,000 to write them a sales page. Right. So fund fundamental difference. I'm so the, I would not be able to take the existing market that I serve with 
with my copywriting business and create anything lower ticket that's sort of hands-off and more scalable that I've been able to think of that, that again, that those clients would buy. They want to hire somebody to do it completely for them. And I, I don't know what else, what other options there would be for them that they would buy like as a sort of info product course model. Even like coaching, then you're getting into like advisory type consulting offers. And if so, I'd have to like start a mastermind where I'm sharing and like bringing together my clients and myself and sharing expertise on a group coaching environment. But I don't have that many clients. So I just don't feel like I have the, I don't feel like I have the, the past client roster where I could sufficiently fill a mastermind that it would be worth my time. Right. Cause that, then you're relying on someone economies of scale where you spend one hour on a coaching call and you work with a bunch of your group coaching members in the mastermind and you, you know, you, you spread out the, their investment for one call makes it worthwhile, but you only have to spend an hour and change. Now, I don't feel like I have enough past clients who would want that for me that they would pay for it. So again, I haven't found that match for how I can take, I, I've, I've identified the market and I've identified the services that work for that market. And I haven't found anything that bolts onto that, that adds incremental revenue. That's not more of my time. Yeah. Right. So for me, it's how do I get even better deals for the thing I'm already doing? How do I make even more money for the thing I'm already doing based on performance, based on royalties, bonuses, uh, raising my fees? Those are the areas where I can grow the business. It's it's to that, you know, the Jay Abraham three ways to grow a business. A or one, get more total clients, two, get the clients to pay more on the first transaction. Three is to get them to have more transactions over time basically is the gist. So for me, I'm sort of maxed out on number of clients. So for me, it's how do I grow a, the initial transaction and B the amount of subsequent transactions. Those are the places I'm focused on. And I still think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, so that's why I haven't built any sort of additional coaching or mastermind type business. Again, cause I don't think it attaches very well to my existing business um, when it comes to like productize. So you, so does that answer your question about that? It, it does. It portion? does. Portion. Um, so, oh, and then the other thing was hiring. So again, the, in order for me to do those things that I was talking about, you know, raising my initial fee and then also getting more payments over time via bonuses and royalties, I don't need staff to do that. So why am I going to take on the expense of staff to, do something that I don't need staff to do. Staff would let me bring on more total clients, but when I've run the numbers, it the problem is, so I've tried hiring subcontractors in the past. The problem is when I look at the actual, like my data for the, the time it takes me for the project and what I've paid, either I hire somebody who is financially relatively affordable, but then it takes me so much time to get their work up to yep. the standard that I need. I lose, I lose money, right. Yep. Based on what I would have been, how long it would have taken me to do on my own without paying them their expense, or I pay somebody a whole lot of money. I have virtually no margin 
And sure, I don't need to edit their work very much, but also I have virtually no margin. So the, like the incremental benefit of that person on the team is marginal. So why would I want to go through the headache of bringing on all these other people again when, when either way, the marginal utility, like the extra income that I get from them is minimal or negative. There's the risk that it's negative. And at best, it's minimal gain. Like that to me is not an equation I want to, to mess around with, right? I don't want to be in scenarios where there's a big downside and a small upside. I want the reverse. I want small downside, big upside. And so for me, that's where keeping my existing business where I basically can't lose money and then adding royalties and performance bonuses and things like that, where, you know, I, I write a couple of sales letters a year. And if one of them takes off and does 10 million in sales and I have 2% royalty on that, now I've made 200 K for one project. Like you only need a couple of those to hit every couple of years to significantly boost your income. Uh, and again, that doesn't take staff that doesn't take employees that doesn't take scaling the total number of clients. It's the second two elements of how to grow a business from Jay Abraham that I'm really sort of focusing on. Cause again, I feel like there's, I have a lot more juice to squeeze out of that before I really have to think about staff. And the other mm-hmm. positive is if I have a bunch of royalties and I have those really, really lucrative clients, it changes the calculus for me to be able to then afford that really great hire who doesn't take a lot of my time to edit and review because now the, my margins, my, my gross profit or gross revenue is so high. It is, I still have enough margin left over to pay somebody really, really strong. So now I don't have to edit it. And it gets, it gets me around that problem that I have today where anybody who's really good that I want to hire takes up so much of my mm-hmm. gross revenue that I have almost no profit left over. If my, if my project size gets a lot bigger, now I do have that margin left over. Now I can hire that person. And so that's why I feel like the, the, the immediate priority for me is to maximize my return per client because it opens up all those doors down the line if I want to go through them. Okay. This excellently thorough uh, answer. <laughs> and I just have to underline two things in there because I can hear someone listening to this. Uh, they've been screaming in their brains up to this point. You charge $20,000 for a sales letter is <laughs> is one of the uh, things in their head right now. And the second thing is, what, 2% royalties on top of that is is part of the other thing uh, that's happening in there. We're in this world, and so we know that, okay, we, we have the expectations, but uh, and so do your clients. Uh, but for the consultant that's leading the team of consultants, maybe they have a team of five, maybe they have a team of 10, 20 or so, but they're not in the world of direct, uh, direct response sales. And they've maybe never hired a copywriter at your level before. Um, what kind of expectations should they have around working with someone like you? As far as like price points? Uh, when does it even make sense? When, when should they how much of copywriting should they learn to do themselves or even how to manage it before coming to somebody like you? Yeah. So if you are, again, if you are trying to do the, if you are the owner of that consulting agency, I don't think you need a copywriter. <laughs> I may, mm-hmm. I may be wrong, but uh, you know, again, unless you're doing a productized thing 
where you're trying to collect a payment without ever having an interaction with, with somebody. And it's all done where you run an ad, then they get on a page and then they ultimately buy. There's no, you know, setting call with a sales rep. There's no closing call with a sales rep. Like there's none of that. Maybe again, I, I don't think that you really need a copywriter. You, in my experience, you would just be growing the, the same direct client generation methods that I found to be successful for me, going to live events, networking, um, referrals, those types of, of strategies, cold outreach even. I would imagine you're doing those things Maybe you have a sales team doing like doing amplified versions of those things. Um, I just, to me, I don't think direct response copy is typically like an inbound tool, right? Mm. So you're running, you're, you're buying, you're buying someone's attention. You're interrupting their day with an ad. You're getting their attention. You're getting them to click and then getting them to, you know, again, raise their hand for a, a call or a webinar or whatever. Then either paying for their productized service or you know booking that sales call that that setting call whatever if you're trying to do that in a large automated way at scale then maybe you need a direct response copywriter to, to put together those types of funnels but it, you know if you're in, if you're to the point of are you you know if you're a consulting company with five people i don't know i don't think that that would be if i was running if i'm imagining myself running a company of that size I don't think that that is the next thing I need to do to double or triple my business. To me, I would still think that at that level, you are just using the, you're getting better at those direct methods of, of client generation before you go into the sort of inbound ad buying model. Mm. I think, you, you know, once you get to the eight figures, then you might be looking at, at you know, you got to go with the the buy ads and do the whole webinar thing. And then you might need a, a actual copywriter. Um, but then if you're making, you know, eight figures a year, paying somebody, you know, 10 to $20,000 for a sales letter plus, or if you do the webinar thing that that sometimes takes the place of a sales letter. Um, but yeah, again, if you are a, in a, in the low to mid seven figures, even I can't imagine that you need to create some whole crazy funnel to grow your, your consulting business. I would, mm -hmm. I would think that your ability to, you, you still have enough surface area left of, of clients that you can just directly get in touch with that it to me is a big risk to, to go. Cause then you're, you're, you're going and exploring an entirely new form of client generation that could completely fail. And that's really expensive, right? Cause you got to buy the media. That's not cheap. You got to pay the copywriter and the designer and the, you know, the video people, if you're going to do a video, set that all up, it, you have a lot on the line. And then going back to our conversation about validation, like you should really be validating a lot of that before you try to make it completely automated. Um, so I would say most of the people that you just described do not need a copywriter. They at, at best, I would say need a sales team. You know, can you get a really, really great salesperson who's who can generate leads, or that you can you just get the leads and then they can go and do the cold outreach, or you send them to events and they can go and find clients for you? Like, I, I think you're still at that direct sales stage at the scale you you described. Great distinction. Now let's add an additional scenario to this. 
what about the person who has decided that they're going to shift from the service model to a digital product model? How does this change? Because now we're trying to sell a digital product uh, without a sales team. Uh, and, and we're probably doing it through organic media or we're doing it, you know, through a paid media, uh, traffic source, uh, then how do they, and when do they, uh, think through, um, learning potential copywriting and stuff themselves? When do they hire it out? So on and so forth. That's a, that is a challenging shift to make. <laughs> so let me start by saying that, yeah. uh, you know, the, the paradox is the higher the price point, the lower, the smaller number of people will, will buy the, the lower the price point, the more people will buy, but either way, it necessitates a pretty large audience in order for those numbers to really pan out in any meaningful way. Right? So I would say, ideally you would want your own audience built up already like that you have a sizable audience that you can run the numbers and say okay if, if call it one percent of these people will spend about a thousand bucks in a given year where do i end up in terms of my revenue and profit and all that stuff rough numbers and if your math if, if that math doesn't work out then you you're back in that scenario of you have a very high risk proposition to make that shift. And because at that point you're talking about, I have to not just create the product. I have to acquire the audience and then get them to buy the product possibly all in that same instance, which is again, that's the direct response model of you buy an ad, somebody clicks it, they come to the page by the end of the page, they're ready to buy and they pull out their card. That is a, <laughs> there's a reason people like me get paid pretty well to, to write these pages is because it's really, really hard. And most of the time, people who set out to do that, they fail. And most of, I, I fail, my peers fail, all of us fail because it is really, nobody can, can bat with a hundred, like is batting a thousand or has a hundred percent success rate. So it is just really, really hard to do. So if you're trying to make that shift, I would say, A, have the audience, establish that audience already. So you know, when you go to launch the offer, that your, your people will be there, they're going to buy from you and you'll be okay. Or have a business that is so big already that you can, that spending a six, multiple six figures, you, you can gamble with multiple six figures to try and test your way to a winning course funnel model. Because between media buying you know, multiple failures before you get it right, copywriters, et cetera, development, design, creating the product, all that stuff. Like if you don't have multiple six figures that you can afford to lose and you're willing to just risk, then you're talking about building it up from scratch and basically just learning it as a hobby at first and like starting from literally zero, building a super small email list, growing it over time, creating a product and like, but you're not going to be able to just pivot from, hey, I have a $5 million consulting company to now I want a $5 million course business. Mm -hmm. They are completely different. They are, I don't want to say it's not transferable, but it is so minimally transferable that, again, the only really advantage is if you have a $5 million consulting company, are you willing to just 
gamble with $250,000 to try to spin up a course funnel that works and cross your fingers that it does. And then if you have a working funnel, then the nice part is you just put in more money. It spits out more money. You put in more money. It spits out more money until you hit some point of diminishing returns or, you know, you've, you've, you max out the algorithm, you max out the, the, the sort of immediate market. And then you have to change your strategy to grow even more. But like, until you hit that point of diminishing returns, it, there's a pretty nice, even runway from like, Oh, we got this funnel working now. All we got to do is tune up our budget every week and, and spend a little bit more on Facebook or YouTube or whatever it is. And it will scale more or less linearly until you, until you tap out. But, but again, it's hard really, really hard to get to that point. And I would say, um, and so unless, again, unless you're willing to start from scratch and spend years building it on your own or invest multiple six figures and just take it as a gamble, don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. So I love that because it's excellent level setting um, and uh, just really great uh, setting of expectations. Uh, validation is really like the biggest risk because once you have it validated, like you just alluded to, it's like, all right, great. You got a working funnel. You got a working offer. All right. Pump money into it <laughs> yeah. until you start to hit um, the law of diminishing returns. Right. Um, and, and I will also yeah. say it, just because you have you validate something with your own internalist doesn't always mean that it will work out yeah. to like a cold audience on, you know, on Facebook or YouTube or wherever. Mm -hmm. So like the validation needs to happen in the same, ideally in the same market environment that you plan to actually operate the funnel. So I would say, yes, if you're just getting started or you're trying to launch something new, validate it with your warm audience first, because if they don't buy it, there's almost no prayer that it's going to go to a cold audience and actually work. But at the same time, just because it works with your cold audience who trusts you the most, who likes you and you know has that built-in affinity, just because it works for them doesn't always mean it's going to work. In fact, it often will work on your own audience, but then not to the public. So even then, the you need to validate in steps and validate in yeah. in sort of concentric circles from your warmest audience to out you know to a a lukewarm audience to then truly cold traffic and expect it to possibly fall apart at any of those stages and then you need to go dive in again and really ramp up adjusting the message adjusting the offer trying to fix it and the sad truth is a lot of the times there's just the number of things that will actually work on absolutely cold traffic is just small Right. So the, the chances of you finding that thing are low. And so be prepared to fail a bunch before you actually get a winner. And keep in mind that just because it's working on your existing audience, not a guarantee. In fact, you know, be even more careful because again, a lot of times they're buying because they trust you. Establishing that trust with a totally cold person is a is a much different story. Love that. Again. Excellent uh, setting of expectations, all true. Uh, and for some who've had their hopes up maybe a little bit too high, it might be, dif <laughs> might be difficult, difficult to hear, but much better for it to hurt a little bit now versus to hurt a lot of it later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. thank you uh, uh, for sharing that. And I want to change gears uh, because anyone who's been listening into this uh, can obviously tell you have a wealth of expertise and you have probably read like a bunch of books. Uh, and so I'm curious, 
Uh, what are some of your favorite books? Well, we'll just do one favorite personal development book. And then if you have one, one favorite book that's on the professional development side of things. That's uh, a good one. Okay. Personal development book. Um, I would, the one that's coming to mind just off the top of my head was um, powerful engagement. So it's about sort of energy management instead of just time management. It's an oversimplification, but that's more or less the gist. Um, and then professional development. Um, so I'm going to go with the how to write a good advertisement by Victor Schwab. It's old. I think it's from like the thirties. Um, so some of the examples are outdated, but the principles that underlie the examples are, uh, still applicable. So I, I would go with, uh, with those guys. Love it. Love it. Love it. And this is something uh, that I have like only two more questions uh, for okay. you, uh, just to be respectful of your time. Uh, the second to last question uh, is, if you were stuck on a desert island, and you could only eat one dessert on that desert island for the rest of your time there, what would it be? I, I like dessert. So that's a tough one. Uh, okay. Going with the gut reaction is oatmeal raisin cookies. I know they're controversial. Some people say some people are like chocolate chip or bust. No, yes. no, a nice, like soft, the word moist is kind of weird, but moist oatmeal raisin cookie all day, every day. Oh, that's fantastic. I have had debates with people about the whole oatmeal versus like chocolate chip thing. Yeah. And people are willing to die on the hill of they chocolate are, chip. They are, man. They really are. And I'm just like, I, I'm actually in the oatmeal raisin cap and people give me crap for it all the time. I'm glad that I've met somebody else. Yeah, well, screw those people. You yeah, and me, right. we'll go we'll, yeah. we'll go lock ourselves on an island and eat oatmeal cookies. <laughs> and cookies and so. <laughs> oh man, that's great. We should start uh, an oatmeal raisin cookie funnel. Let's go. Ooh. <laughs> actually, so funny side yeah. story. Um, my uh, a friend of mine, his daughter, who is, I guess, a senior in high school now, started like an online cookie company. Mm -hmm. And she will not she won't make the oatmeal raisin because she's like, they're an abomination. So we should start a competing <laughs> business, set up a funnel and like directly target. <laughs> just like try to go after all of the disappointed people who go to that site and don't find the oatmeal raisin. We'll, we'll, we'll scoop up that market and say, Hey, if you don't want it, they, she's not going to serve you, but we will. Yeah. Yeah. You oatmeal raisin only.com. Oh, that's perfect. I love it. I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> I would I would totally be down for that guy. I would have so much fun doing that. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Screw these chocolate chip people. Chocolate <laughs> chip people, we can be friends to a degree, I guess. No. Um, so it's it's uh it's all good. It's all good fun. Um but one of the final questions, and uh, this it you've shared a wealth of uh expertise. Um, on all things from products to offers, you know, services, uh, you know, growing consultancy. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Sure. So I actually put together a little special page 
It's a freelance like a pro.com slash TMC for the modern consultant. So freelance like a pro.com slash TMC. And um, one of the hallmarks of my consulting and, and freelance business is working on retainer. So I find that personally, monthly recurring revenue is kind of great. Um, you know, there's a reason that that large businesses that have monthly recurring revenue, they get much larger multiples if they're ever sold compared to companies that do not have recurring revenue. Um, so for me personally, I find that it just, I can sleep easier at night. If I know every month, I'm not starting at zero, right? Every new month that comes along, I've got a baseline of money that's just coming in the door. And it's kind of nice. I, you know, I sleep easy. I don't have to worry about paying my bills. And it means I'm not constantly chasing down new work every single month. That's just, that's not how I want to operate. So the challenge with a retainer comes at the end of the retainer, right? So if you finish the work with a client, sometimes getting that final payment can be a little dicey. Um, so, you know, the, that's, that is the point where you as the consultant have the least leverage because the client has decided they don't need you anymore. So if you have a cancellation policy or whatever, well, they tell you they want to cancel. They've decided at that point that they don't want to pay you anymore. So if there are, for any number of reasons, they may either make it difficult to, like, to collect that final payment or worst case, if the client is bankrupt, you may have the greatest cancellation policy in the history of the United States legal system. But if that client is out of money, you are not getting paid for that final month that you are owed under the retainer. So basically, I, I have this model that I call the landlord retainer because I got the idea from New York City landlords who, when you try to rent an apartment, they ask for a zillion things before they give you the keys. You know, um, you got to do an application. They'll do background checks. Uh, they get the first month's rent. And most importantly, the thing that I borrowed was the last month's rent. So whenever I start a retainer, the client pays me whatever the remainder of this current month is. So, you know, if it's, if we start the retainer on the 15th of the month, they pay me for half of the first month. They pay me for the entire second month and they pay me for the final month whenever that is. So now I get the last month of the retainer upfront in my bank account right away. So I don't have to worry. And yes, it still has the cancellation policy of they have to give me a certain amount of notice and all that stuff. But it means financially speaking, whenever they notify me, if they like try to ghost me or they want to disappear or whatever, fine. I got the money already. So I am financially protected. There is literally no possible way for a client to now ghost me and fail to pay their final month of the retainer because they paid it when they first started. And then it becomes a cash flow management problem for me to make sure that I don't spend that money before the end of the retainer. Because at that point, you know, when they do end the retainer, you are obligated to work that final month for them and, and you don't get to send another invoice. So you need to then manage your own cash flow to make sure that when the client notifies you that they're ending their retainer, you then kind of you have that money set aside somewhere and then you release it into your cash flow as if you sent them a final invoice and then everything is smooth sailing from there. But again, it takes away that risk that you you somehow don't get paid at the end. So all that said, I have a contract template that lays out those exact payment terms, how to structure it, how to handle the um, you know the the cancellation policy so that it all lines up and that if they notify you that they're going to cancel in the middle of the month, you still get all of that month and the entire next month. And so 
template takes care of all that. Again, I'm not a lawyer. It's not legal advice, but uh, you can see what I do and you can borrow it and model it for yourself. And again, it is a, uh, it's completely free, no opt-in required at freelancelikeapro.com slash TMC. And um, my hope is that you'll see it. You'll think that it's awesome. I will earn your trust. And at that point, you'll actually want to subscribe to my email list because if I'm giving this stuff away for free, imagine what kind of powerful material you'd get when you sign up. So hopefully, again, you can download it, enjoy it, and it builds trust so that you'll want to sign up for my emails going forward. And there is a form on that page if you do decide you want to sign up right away. I would love to have you. And uh, otherwise, Mark, thanks for having me. And uh, this was great. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to catch up with you again. Yeah, man. Oatmeal right. raisin cookies for life. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect.